0: almost the entire time, I'm not only constantly thinking, what is, the, what is the main point that the speaker is making right now, but also, how can I make it visual? And so there's a lot of sort of trial and error, and then trying to visualize things very quickly as the speakers show examples.
1: Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital news and the people who make it. On the phone with you today is Cece Wei, a news apps developer at ProPublica. Before that, she was a graphics editor at The Washington Post, and she's also the co-founder of Code With Me. Welcome, Cece. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, I, I've actually wanted to have you on the podcast for a very long time to talk about uh, coding, but uh, I was, saw something that you did on social media recently that made me want to reach out to you now. It was a link of some sketches that you did for the recent Society of News Design Conference in San Francisco. Uh, What kind of blew me away about them was that I thought they're really great visualizations of uh, what some of the speakers were saying. So what inspired you to post those sketches?
0: Yeah, it's a pretty good story, actually. I had recently gone to this conference called Tapestry, which happens before um, as a one-day data visualization conference. And one of the keynote speakers there is a woman named Catherine Madden, who does these things she called sketchnotes at various conferences that she had gone to. And the conference itself had seen her do them for all of their sessions the year before as a participant. And so, they invited her back to give a talk about sketch notes and how she does them. And as soon as I saw the presentation, I was so inspired and I knew that it was something that I wanted to try because it seemed like, one, such a great way to remember a conference by but also a great way to actually process your thoughts while you're learning. And so S&T was my first opportunity really after that to start trying it out myself. And I think you can tell, too, even on the sketches that I posted, I think I did six for S&D. And there's definitely varying levels of quality as I sort of got better and better at figuring out how to do them.
1: So how did you draw the sketches? What tools were you using?
0: So I physically am using an iPad Pro with an Apple Pencil. But you can use sort of any device with any sort of stylus that works on it. The app that I use is something called Paper, which is made by a company named Fifty Three, and that's free. Anyone can download that.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the sketches themselves and, and what they kind of represented. They were each for a different speaker or group of speakers. Is that correct?
0: Right. It was basically each one was for a different session that I went to.
1: Uh huh. So l- let's imagine rather than just taking a note notes to, or uh, recording a. One of the sessions, you actually you had your iPad out and you were you're sort of drawing pictures to sort of illustrate different points that the speakers were making.
0: Right. And I was drawing essentially the whole time. And what I learned very quickly is that it's such an active activity that I could only do it for every other session that I attended because I had to take basically a brain break so that I could recharge and pay attention that closely again. Because almost the entire time, I'm not only constantly thinking, what is the what is the main point that the speaker is making right now, but also how can I make it visual? And so there's a lot of sort of trial and error and then trying to visualize things very quickly as the speakers show examples so that I can capture whatever one it is that I think is a good enough summary to help explain whatever point the speaker is making.
1: So you could sort of, you know, if you begin at the first sketch, you could sort of maybe see a progression as you got better as the day went along. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I think my first sketch was, I think, the morning keynote, and it's very simple. Um, I'm going to say his name wrong, so I'm just going to say the Twitter handle to so the speaker who's at Witchlight. And he basically talked about how different types of art and communication are things that we're focusing on digitally, but there's also a connection between digital and physical communication. And so he talked a lot about projects he did where you can interact with a physical object and that might be as big as a sculpture or a building and then it will reflect something back to you. And that might be sort of some visualization of how loud you're being or actually allow you to control what the the lights inside of a sculpture or what color they might be. And so he was really talking about that and I was trying to figure out what he Was going to be culminating his talk to as I did it. And I think that's definitely, that was my first sketch note that I had ever taken.
1: So, did you, I yes. mean, even before this, when you were like, would have pen and paper, would you draw pictures when you were like covering a speech or something? Or was it just pretty much words? Did this sort of, you know, open up a, a new horizon for you, I guess?
0: Yeah, I definitely, I had never done anything like this before. So, even when I had pen and paper, I wouldn't draw. I would definitely just take notes, normal notes sort of similar to what you might do for a class in college. And for this, I really just felt like, one, it allowed me... Something I learned after the fact is that it allowed me to remember all of the sessions much better than even when I was taking notes before, or as if I was just sort of watching and looking, giving it my full attention the whole time.
1: One of the reasons I I wanted to talk to you about this is because I thought it was neat from a couple of perspectives. First, you know, it showed you using a new tool to talk about, you know, a presentation visually. And then you posted it online so that people could sort of, you know, A, share the experience of what the actual talk was, but then also to see how you would use a new technology for you to tell a story visually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Something that was actually very heartwarming for me is that, you know, frequently when I go to conferences for specific sessions that I feel like I got a lot out of it and I also happen to be taking notes, I'll put, say, my Google document online. But this was definitely the first time in which I got people who I didn't know who weren't able to go to s and tweeting at me after the fact saying, I loved seeing your sketch notes and it really made me feel like I was there and I could actually hear and see what the speakers were saying, which was very exciting because I've never gotten that type of feedback on my sort of text-based notes. People will say, like, oh, this is really useful. Thank you. Or, like, thanks for all the practical sort of tips that were written down. But the feedback that I got after posting these for S&D was sort of a different, a different level. And I, I didn't really understand it at the time how much more helpful it was until I had a chance to sort of step back and look back at the things that I had done as
1: well. And it seems like that would be something that probably, I guess, maybe should have been obvious since you part of what you do is, is to think about creating data visualizations or a way to create or to represent data in a way that people can consume it visually.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think the barrier was really never thinking about a presentation as data, even though it very much is.
1: Yeah. So are you someone who thinks visually when you do things?
0: Yeah, I would definitely say so. I think working on projects, I do a lot of sketching to help me figure out whether or not I like an idea to begin with and sketching out a lot of different possible options so that I can really work on doing a much more polished high-fidelity sort of version for myself later and being able to pick, you know, there's lots of ways to visualize information. Which one do I think is going to work the best here?
1: So is that pretty much the procedure? Well, what's the process? I guess that's a better way to ask. What's the process for you when you get a new story? You know, either somebody pitches you a story or something to know you're going to be working on. Mm-hmm. Do you immediately begin starting to think about, you know, what's the best way to tell this in in a visual way?
0: I would say that part of it comes later the first priority is always more research so that might mean calling some experts or it might just mean me sort of reading up on a topic and that is really what guides me to figure out you know out of this entire story what is the part that visual storytelling could really add to it and once i have that nugget and that usually comes out only after i've taken the time to really understand story a lot better or to ask experts a few questions of my own, once I know sort of like, oh, I see, like this is a major point and I can already tell it would be a great visual story, that's when I start sketching out possible options. And often at that stage is when I realize some of the designs that I see in my head will not work because I draw them out, say, on a just normal pencil and paper and I realize that I don't like them or that they give off the wrong impression.
1: Do you find that there's a lot of variety in the way that you tell stories or do you find maybe there's sort of just different presentations of I don't know of graphs and maps and things like that?
0: I think it really depends on the story itself. There are certain types of stories that I will frequently tell in the same way because of the nature of the story itself. And so I think that that is really the the north star and what is guiding me which is what what is the goal here? Am I trying to get the audience or readers to understand some big change has happened, right, some sort of like, you know, some type of really large increase or decrease and it's drastic and it's really going to affect us because something happened. If that's the case, oftentimes it might just be a really simple bar chart or line chart. And then as it gets more and more complicated and as the message gets more and more nuanced, that's sort of where the different types of data visualization comes in. And I start to consider what are all the other ways I could show this to be more effective.
1: Are there any particular strategies or pre- types of presentations that you like to do more than others?
0: Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I would say that I really, I really enjoy using color to show different quantities of change. So that's a really vague way for me to put that, but a, a more concrete example would be something like a heat map. And that can be literally sort of on a physical map or it could be sort of a series of colors that denote, like let's say, um, how much taxi drivers are charging in various cities, right? And does that match up with demand or uh, how large those cities are? Well, you can see really easily in a large visualization made up with tons of little blocks that represent sort of a uh, scale. And you can just see right away whether or not something abnormal is happening because you expect all the colors to act one way. And when they don't, that's when you know right away that's sort of the signal in this
1: pattern. Let's sort of backtrack a little bit. Let's, let's talk about how you got to, to the place that you are, both from a, a gra- you know, data visualization, coding and, and graphic standpoint. What, what sort of your journalist journal- journey, how did you become a, or how did you come to journalism?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, How did I come to journalism? That starts way back. Um, (laughs) I would say I, I wanted to be a journalist since high school, and it was all due to my high school newspaper. I had a teacher recommend that I take a class in journalism, and at my high school it meant you physically worked on the student paper for that first class. And once I did it, and I was very hesitant to do it at all, but once I did it, I really loved it. And so that sort of really grew my interest. And so I ended up going to journalism school for undergrad. I went to Northwestern at the Medill School of Journalism.
1: That's a pretty good school.
0: But, yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Some people may have heard of it. But really what I learned there was that what I was interested in, in terms of telling stories, wasn't just writing and reporting. And a lot of my interests, started growing in other classes that I was taking including magazine design and I was trying to figure out a way how do I how do I use sort of these design skills for the journalism that I'm interested in doing instead of just sort of writing an article which is what I'd come into college thinking that I wanted to do and at the time there wasn't really any other classes that I could take but luckily there was a student a student organization that was a totally new online magazine that anyone could participate in. And I sort of essentially through this extracurricular activity started experimenting, making interactive graphics. And at the beginning, they were really simple. And I'm, I'm sure if I were to look back on them now, very ugly. <laughs> and the main experience there was that I got to try different things. And I, I'm pretty sure I got to sort of do it without all of these inhibitions of like, is it polished enough? Is it professional enough? And once I started doing that, that's when I got my first graphics internship at the Washington Post. And going there was really what helped me understand what was possible. And being able to work with a professional team um, helped me grow a lot. And sort of from there, I was able to really pinpoint the fact that I was interested in things like data analysis and visualization and telling stories that way.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking back to what you said a few minutes ago about... When you get a story, you're not necessarily thinking from a visual perspective right away. You, you want to find out more about it and understand whatever the story is about. Getting more information, data, so mm-hmm. that you can make a make a best case you know decision as to what is the right right approach for this type of story. Is that fairly typical for you?
0: Yeah, I would say so, and I I would probably say it's probably fairly typical for a lot of people who work in this area, just because there's. There's always going to be a lot of options about how you use visuals to help tell your story, right? And it's often the easiest for me to figure out how I want to tell a story if I'm also the reporter writing the article. That is maybe the case, I don't know, I want to say something like 35% of the time here at ProPublica, just because I know the story so well already. I already know all of the little details that I would normally have to ask somebody else for in order to evaluate whether or not this is something that should be shown visually or is so simple or can be told in such a straightforward manner that a sentence is actually the best way to tell that story.
1: Part of your job involves coding and you also uh, were one of the co-founders of Code With Me. Is this something that a skill that sort of developed with your initial foray into graphic design or is this something that you sort of built up over the years?
0: It's something that I first Dabbled in in college while I was uh, working at North by
1: Northwestern, which is
0: the name of the online student magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was basically just a, um, I mean, to me, it was like a tool that I needed to learn in order to express myself and what I wanted to say. And so oftentimes, I think, you know, I think that was around 2009, 2010 when a few media organizations were publishing interactive graphics and not very frequently. And sometimes I would see something that I thought was really amazing and I thought would show the point of the story really well, and I would want to do something similar for our college-sized stories, and I didn't know how to do them. And so coding was sort of just me figuring out, how do I make this happen? Because that's, like this is what I want people to see, and I don't have the skills to do that yet, so coding was just a way to get from point A to point B.
1: You, you trained yourself a lot on this coding. You, these are things that you, you sought out and, and found answers to. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't have a formal class or anything. Is that sort of typical of uh, the people who do a lot of this coding?
0: Yeah, it's really typical. At ProPublica here, we have about 10 people on our team. And um, when uh, I talk about what we majored in in college, it's things like English, Middle Eastern studies, biology, philosophy, legal studies. A few folks here had started out in computer science, but then switched to different majors. And most of us had never studied it at all when we were in college. And I think it's very typical of sort of one one group of people who is working in this area right now. And I say group because it's not sort of long enough to be a generation.
1: <laughs> right.
0: But... You know, journalism schools have caught on that coding skills are valuable, and so there now are classes, and a lot of students that are coming out of schools now, like this year, last year, even the year before, do have certain classes or double majors under their belt that I had never considered when I was still in school, and that was just like five years ago.
1: Right, and and I um I was in uh, the interactive. Per- uh, the Interactive Journalism Program at American University, and part of that, there was a coding class in it. And I know at that time, and this was 2010 to th- 2012, there was sort of the sense in a lot of newsrooms like, oh, God, you know, do I have to learn how to, how to code? And it seemed mm-hmm. to be, you know, is that a bad thing? I mean, should coders, should, you know, all journalists know some coding, or, or should it just be people who are specifically going to do it?
0: Yeah, so I, um, I have a very straightforward point of view on this. I do think that all journalists should know some coding. And uh, I know that there was a large debate about this a few years back about whether or not it was necessary. But I think the conversation has really evolved since then. And so um, for me, there's a few things, right? So we live in a world in which a lot of uh, software is really changing our lives, just not as journalists, but just as human beings alive right now. And as journalists, right, part of our job to cover whether or not it's a beat um, or if you're doing a general assignment, more chances than not, your area of expertise is also being affected by technology changing. Um, And being able to understand at least how code works and how it functions on a basic level, even if you don't know how to write code, I think is incredibly useful but then also as journalists specifically, and this is one of the reasons why I really believe that so insanely helpful as another tool, is that it doesn't even have to be used for web presentation, but actually just data collection. People can write code to analyze information that they get from experts or from the government that we have never been able to do before. And, you know, in previous situations would have to just sort of rely on experts to agree with each other or validate each other or just the fact that they have expertise, I have to sort of quote them at that surface level. But now I can actually interact with them and have a conversation and say, hey, you know, can I get this data set from you? And more often than not, they're happy to give it to you and you can check it out yourself. And I've had tons of really productive conversations that way where I come back and say, hey, why doesn't this match up here? Um, And you discover the craziest things like, oh, a government database wasn't sort of well kept. And so some of the data is just missing. And if you were, had, you know, if you just used it, it would actually be inaccurate, even though the government wasn't aware that it was inaccurate. And so those types of conversations and ability to fact check your sources suddenly opens up as an opportunity that didn't before.
1: Yeah. And, and I think um, I, hopefully more and more journalists are recognizing just the fact that how much data, you know, how many data sets are out there now that they can actually go into to support stories that they're they're writing or even as a basis for stories and to yeah, fill absolutely. out fill out new types of things. So you're in the you're in the the news apps division at um at Pro ProPublica. Pro Publica. Yeah. Pro, 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 Pro what type of um, apps have you been developing there?
0: Yeah, sure. So we are called news apps and the way that we sort of define what that means is it's not a iOS app or an Android app, but rather a web app. And so usually that means it's a standalone part of our website that allows you to either interact with something that tells the story itself or allows you to sort of search for yourself in the story. So to give you an example, something that we did just last year that I worked on was called Surgeon Scorecard. And so this is a project that lots of people at ProPublica worked on, and I sort of joined the team in our last year, but they had been working on it for at least a year or two before that. It was super ambitious. The idea was, you know, there are thousands of Americans who get surgeries done every year that are all sort of routine surgeries, things like a knee replacement, right? And you sort of schedule it, and then you go in to get the procedure done, and generally speaking, it should be really safe, and you shouldn't be coming out of these procedures with... Um, infections or, uh, you know, need to get surgery again, but what's unfortunate for patients is that there's really no way for you to access that information. And so, ProPublica sort of really took on a very ambitious project in trying to release that information to the public and we had to jump through a lot of hoops, do a lot of our own data analysis, consult with a lot of experts to make that happen. And so the news app that came out of it, along with multiple stories, allows you essentially to search either your location. So let's say you're looking for um, a knee replacement and you live in Maplewood, Minnesota, right? What hospitals are near me? What surgeons near me perform this procedure? And then what is their complication rate? So how often is it that someone actually comes back with a serious condition as a result of that surgery? And so this app essentially just allows normal patients to look up a doctor that they're already seeing, doctors they're being recommended to, or just an area or a hospital for all the doctors that they could be be going to see and compare them with each other with real data about their performance for the first time. Sort of an example of a news app.
1: Now, is that an app that uh, the information is updated?
0: So what we normally do for our apps is sometimes they're updated monthly if for some reason our... um, the, the, Whoever is releasing the data, sometimes it's the government updates monthly, but most often we update them about once a year.
1: Okay, and uh, so tell me about uh, Code With Me. What was your goal when you you sort of launched that? And actually, you know, tell tell me about launching it.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so Code With Me originally started as just two people, um, me and Tom Gerardakon, who at the time I think worked at the Boston Globe, and I was at the Washington Post. And we were both sort of just frustrated with this concept that, you know, the interactive graphics area of journalism had a lot of jobs, but not enough people to fill those jobs. Um, students weren't graduating with these skills in large enough numbers, but also constantly hearing from my colleagues who didn't work in graphics telling me they'd love to learn these skills, but they don't know where to go. And the two of us were hearing sort of the feedback in two different newsrooms, and we were like, oh, and Tom and I went to Northwestern together, and we sort of said to ourselves, well, why don't we just try out teaching them, right? And the first event was just a two-day event that we threw together. We looked for, in our own past, right, what made the biggest difference in us being able to learn code in a way that felt friendly, that felt approachable. And both of us, it was sort of having someone who was sharing those experiences and someone who was patient, didn't have to be a teacher. For both of us, it was other students, in fact, who were willing to help us out when we really got stuck. And so, one of the key things that we did for Code With Me, even right at the beginning, is that for every two students, we had one mentor who would sit with you. And by then, luckily, the two of us sort of knew enough people and were able to recruit enough people in Washington, D.C., which is where we held our first one, to sort of just come for free and donate their weekend to help these journalists learning how to code. And it was sort of my first experience doing things like ordering catering for a large group of people, trying to get somebody to sponsor uh, the event and a venue, all of that uh, logistical stuff uh, related to hosting an event. And it ended up just going so well, and we got such good positive feedback from it that all of these requests started pouring in from different parts of the country asking if we would be willing to go to Miami, to Portland, um, to New York, and host one there. Um, and so that's sort of how it all really got started. We, just, we were just kind of sick of uh, people not having a place to be able to learn. And then the event just sort of took off on its own after that.
1: So is is that you think the best way to learn how to code is to have uh, you know I get a coding buddy somebody who knows a little bit who can sort of help you you know point you in the right direction and uh, uh, oversee what you're doing.
0: I definitely think that helps just on a morale level and an emotional health level to have somebody like that. What's amazing now, right, is that the first code with me that we did I think was in 2011 or 2012. So that was five-ish years ago, and what's incredible is that since then, the amount of resources to teach uh, the general public how to code has improved significantly. We haven't seen a ton of work around specifically teaching journalists, which we're doing more of at ProPublica now, which I'm excited about, but that general resource pool being so large is already really helpful, and so for us, I think it's a combination of being able to look up how to do something and have a great tutorial online and then also having someone who maybe doesn't even know more than you, but at least is learning with you so that you can bounce ideas off each other and sort of just spot check each other when you're really stuck to see, do you, do you see anything? That could be making this go haywire and having someone to sort of be sort of your emotional buddy (laughs) as you're learning something totally new.
1: So one of the things I like to do when I have somebody on who who works on sort of the technical side of journalism is to sort of talk about what you have in your toolbox, whether they're tools or actual skills or software. What is it that you use daily or frequently in your job and what skills have you sort of developed that are useful that maybe other people who want to get into uh, this type of work um, might want to pick up?
0: Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of tools, and I'll lay them out in separate categories. Like if you're interested in making websites and making interactive graphics or making data visualizations online, there's a pretty clear set of tools for that these days. Mostly what you want to learn is HTML and CSS, which really control sort of just how a normal website looks. And then JavaScript, which controls sort of interaction on a website. And if you really dig into that and you want more powerful tools to do more data visualizations, a really popular JavaScript library, which is essentially like someone has written a lot of JavaScript code and is making it easier for you to write it, the latest tool that's super popular is called D3. Mm -hmm. Um, And that will allow you to do a lot of data visualizations. At ProPublica, we also, to make our news apps, and to think about that, right, imagine looking up a surgeon, like I said before, we have to publish maybe millions of pages that all almost look identical but have different people's information on them. And so in, this, in those cases, I use those tools I talked about before, like HTML and CSS, to craft the page. And then we use tools here uh, to essentially duplicate them and then fill them with unique information every time. And so the tools we use for that here is called Ruby, which is the programming language, And then Rails, which is called the framework. And they're often said together as Ruby on Rails because they pair, they're built to be paired together in use. Outside of that, if you want to do data analysis and you're really interested in that, I recommend a program called R. It's just the letter R. And it allows you to do data analysis. Or honestly, if you have something like Excel or if you have access to Google Spreadsheets because you have a Google account, you can just start with a spreadsheet tool. And then gradually move towards R if you want to do more and more rigorous analysis. I think that is all of the technical things that I would recommend. But I do also, despite it not being very technical, I highly recommend drawing things in pen and paper. It really helps you sort of formulate your ideas to yourself. It's almost like having a conversation with yourself on a piece of paper.
1: Yeah, you have to be able to see it yourself and then imagine, okay, I've drawn a circle here. How can I make this circle appear on the web? What's the best way to do it? What, you know, mm-hmm. what things can I need? To, how can I make it do this, that, and the other thing? The other thing I wanted, I was thinking about asking you about, you're a woman in tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What are your thoughts about uh, women in tech? I mean, how can we, we get more women doing coding?
0: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I have so many thoughts about being a woman in tech. So it is true that I, I by definition, that applies to me.
1: Yeah, but I also work tech. in journalism. Right.
0: Right which is a very specific subset, right? I don't work at a technology company, and I hear a lot of scary stories from people who literally are programmers who work at tech companies. But in journalism, here's something that's kind of crazy to me, which is, it used to, well, it is a male-dominated field, but when you look at the number of female students coming out of journalism schools over the past decade or so, it's almost like this drastic ramp up in percentage in which now a vast majority of journalism graduates coming out of schools now are all women. And so I think something that's been kind of cool for me to see is that as journalism also realizes and journalism schools realize that coding is very valuable for getting jobs, for doing a lot of the new innovative storytelling techniques, a lot of women are also getting into coding because of that, because they came in for the journalism. And then they realized, oh, I can also learn how to code in order to tell these cool stories online. And that's been really inspiring to me and I think isn't something that I see in sort of the rest of that world, right? Like computer science as a field does not follow that trend in which there's like more and more women every year graduating from it. But in journalism, we have that, which is pretty special.
1: So they come for the journalism, they stay for the coding or... They make yeah. a, make a career from the, from the coding. Well, that, that that's pretty that's pretty interesting. I, I'm glad to hear that. So, what's next for you? Are you are you still doing uh, code with me, or are you doing other things to sort of you know encourage this this type of growth?
0: Yeah. So um, it's funny that you ask about that now because uh, today is May 11th. So in less than a month from now, on June 1st is when ProPublica's first-ever data institute is happening. It's basically, uh, when I did Code with Me, it was a two-day event, and we would travel to various cities to make it happen. This ProPublica workshop is essentially a two-week-long training workshop, and we fly in people from all over the country to participate, and they went through sort of an application process. We picked 12 students we're going to teach sort of the basics of everything we do from beginning to end. And so that's teaching sort of programming. It's teaching design. And it's also teaching data journalism. And we are sort of in the midst of doing all of the prep work for that right now.
1: so how many, you said 12 students?
0: Yeah, 12 students.
1: Now, is this something that you're going to be doing every year or more often, you think?
0: Well, so far, it's something that we sort of pitched to the Knight Foundation and got funding for. And so we're doing it this year and next year for sure. And then after that, we have to sort of ask for money again. Okay. Uh, and we'll see, fingers, fingers crossed.
1: So, what are you looking forward to with this?
0: I think something that's really touched me there, and it goes along with our conversation just a second ago about women in tech, is that, right, it's not sort of when it comes to sort of diversity in technology, there's obviously the gender aspect to think about, but also sort of the racial and sort of ethnic backgrounds. And then finally, socioeconomic backgrounds as well. And so something that we worked really hard for with this data institute was trying to find people who were excited to learn, wanted to have these skills, took advantage of what they had in their communities, but don't have access to, say, the, you know, newsroom of ProPublica and they, like, you know, aren't able to just come visit us, which a lot of people are welcome to do because they don't live anywhere near us or because they can't afford to pay out-of-pocket for a workshop in New York City, and I think we're about to announce our class of 12 tomorrow, and they come from such sort of a diversity of backgrounds, both in terms of what type of journalism they do, age diversity, but also um, where they are in the country and where they are in life, that I'm sort of really excited to sort of meet this class of students and see sort of what we can help them accomplish after the
1: institute. That seems like a pretty good, positive place for us to wrap up. Um, Cece, (laughs) good luck with the Institute. Good luck with uh, uh, the work you're doing at ProPublica. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Next time on It's All Journalism.
0: I spent the last 10 years as a reporter here, and one of the things that – Um, I know a lot of reporters want is a way that they can get involved in innovation, experimentation, and reaching out to our audiences more closely. And this allows for that.
1: On our next episode, we talk to Louise Story, executive producer of New York Times Facebook Live, about how the Times is engaging Facebook users through live streaming video. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Grisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.